And boom, we have the decision, everybody. The one that the school choice community has been waiting for. We here at Pioneer Institute, and I know my co-host, the fearless Gerard Robinson, who has been working on issues like these for so much of his career, um, is probably very excited about the um, Supreme Court's decision yesterday in Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue. Gerard, it's it was a pretty big win. Feels pretty good. Can't wait to hear what you think. And wow, today, just one day after the decision, we're going to be talking to Kendra Espinoza, lead plaintiff in the case, along with Erica Smith, an attorney with the Institute for Justice who worked on the case. Um, but Gerard, first, to your to your feelings about this? What are you feeling? What are you thinking? You also had a great article out yesterday uh, that we should probably highlight for our listening audience. Well, I'm excited that the Supreme Court uh, ruled uh, in favor of uh, Kendra Espinoza and the moms in the case. From a national standpoint, anytime the Supreme Court rules on an education case, uh, it's important because it shapes really what the next decade, two decades, and maybe more are, are going to say but it's particularly important when it relates to private schools. Uh, they play a tremendously important role in educating children across the country. Uh, in many ways, uh, students uh, who were not served well in other institutions. So from that standpoint, I'm pretty excited and uh, glad that uh, IJ has once again represented us well before the court. Yeah, thank you, IJ. Any words about um and thank you, Kendra, too, I should say, and to her children. I mean, what a what a big deal. Any words about uh, about your article yesterday? We want to make sure everybody sees it. Thank you for asking me about the article. So Jim Kelly and I co-authored a article called Educational Justice Requires Parental Choice, and it's published by Real Clear Politics. Uh, Jim and I are on the board of Gold Scholarship in Georgia which is the largest tax yep. credit scholarship program uh, in the Peach State. So we have seen for several years the important impact uh, tax credit scholarships have on families across the board. And so our article really just did two things. Uh, number one, it talked about the importance of why, if there is a positive decision, which of course there is, what it would mean for tax credit programs uh, across the country. And number two, to show that there's research pointing in the direction that it's helping now children, particularly, for example, in a state like Florida, um, which has the largest tax credit program in the country, things are moving. But not only are, you know, uh, Naomi, who's uh, the daughter of Kendra, Naomi's benefiting from it, but you have a number of African-American, Hispanic, uh, Native American, uh, multicultural families across the board who are benefiting as well. And so this is something that we think is, is important. And these are some of the items that we highlight in our article. Yeah, it's a great read, and I encourage everybody to to look it up. So, okay, let let's get to it because um, we can we can celebrate. We're gonna give ourselves a little bit of time to celebrate, but we're also all gonna get to work because this opens some doors that I think we need to capitalize on. We're gonna start today on the learning curve, though, with a celebration and then foray into that work by talking in just a moment to Kendra Espinoza, lead plaintiff on the Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue case, and Erica Smith, uh, attorney with the Institute for Justice. Be back in a minute. Well, listeners, we are absolutely privileged to have with us today 
Kendra Espinoza and Erica Smith. We probably don't have to tell you who these ladies are. Kendra Espinoza is the lead plaintiff in the landmark U.S. Supreme Court case, Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue, just decided yesterday. She is a working single mother of daughters Naomi and Sarah, who attend Stillwater Christian School. They were recipients of Montana's education tax credit program until the Montana Department of Revenue, citing the state's Blaine Amendment, issued a ruling, a rule excluding Stillwater Christian from the program on religious grounds. Of course, that all changed yesterday with the Supreme Court's decision in this case. We also have with us Erica Smith, an attorney with the Institute for Justice. She joined IJ in August 2011 and litigates cutting-edge constitutional cases protecting economic liberty, school choice, and free speech in federal and state courts. And of course, Erica um, spent a lot of time working on litigating this case in which we got such a wonderful result yesterday from the Supreme Court of the United States. So Kendra, I would love to start with you because it's, and it's like I said, it's such a privilege to have you on because um, first of all, you've now joined a, a rather elite, a rather special club, not only of plaintiffs who've seen their cases go all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States, but um, because of you and because of the other plaintiffs in this case, because of your family, now you've really, a door has been opened to more school choice and, um, and allowing more families to access the schools that they feel are the best fit for their for their children. I'd love to tell, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about what motivated you and your daughters, Naomi and Sarah, to take this courageous stand. What's, what's life been like? I know, I know you went to work yesterday, so it must be really interesting balancing, you know, normal with what is, it must feel so abnormal in some, in some cases. Tell, tell us about yourself and your family. Um, well, I, um, of course, I'm a single mom, and my girls have been at Stillwater Christian School for five years. And initially, when we heard about this case, my intent was to um, really just be a benefit to our community, not understanding the implications of this case and, and how many people it could potentially impact across our nation. But as time has gone on and having to um, go through all of these interviews and, and starting to re realize how many people are affected... Uh, it really made me want to continue the fight because my thought is there are so many families out there like my own who uh, just needed an extra um, extra hand up, um, extra little bit of help to, to get them to where they want to be. And there's a, plenty of motivated parents out there willing to do what I'm doing, willing to work hard and, and wanting to put their kids um, in a better school, but maybe couldn't can't do it because they can't access uh, the funds to be able to make it happen. Um, and so for me, the driving factor has just been um, knowing that we have an opportunity to, to impact so many people across this country. But that realization didn't come to me until probably partway through this case. And I think it was about the time when we um, lost at the Montana Supreme Court that I went, wow, we're actually going to the U.S. Supreme Court because this is such a big deal. And then understanding how many um, other states across this nation were watching this case, it really started to bring it home for me. Yeah, absolutely. We've all been watching. I can't, it's countless times we've talked about this case on this podcast. And I think mm -hmm. um, 
the whole school choice community was waiting with bated breath uh, for, for about two weeks <laughs> to figure out exactly how it was going to come down. What have been, um, can you remark a little bit about what it's been like to be a lead plaintiff in such a high profile case? I know we've had um, the pleasure of having you visit Massachusetts, for example, to speak at Pioneer. In what ways has it sort of changed your life and your daughter's life to be, this is a very high profile case. How has that been? That it's it truly it's been a very humbling experience for me. I, I never would have imagined that we would end up in this in this position. I mean, this little small family from this little tiny town in northwest Montana bringing a case so big to the U.S. Supreme Court. It, it's been it's been very humbling, um, but it's also been very encouraging to me knowing that we have no matter our status, no matter our um, our financial status in life, we have. Um, an opportunity around us always to make an impact uh, to those people around us. And, um, you know, we've endured long days and, and late nights, and we've endured um, media interviews, and my girls have had to go through all of that as well and being filmed, and they've done very, very well with it. And, and I've learned a lot. I've made some incredible friends and met some incredible people, and it's been a great experience for us. But uh, it's it's very humbling to be honest, and and I'm I'm thankful to be able to do it. But it's um it's been quite a journey. It's been exciting. I bet, and it must be nice to get back to a little bit of uh. Well, you're probably not there yet. Not quite yet. <laughs> a little bit of normal. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to hear a little bit more about the other Montana plaintiff moms. So I mean, this is, uh, and you know, the working mom in me is like, wow, this is good. This is three moms coming together. Um, and, and so how did you come together and, and I don't know if you feel comfortable speaking on their behalf, but I assume they're also pretty, um, satisfied with the Supreme Court's decision. Absolutely. This is something that we have been hoping for for five years now. And, um, of course the kids all, uh, we, we all go to the same school and so we all know each other, but I really believe that this has brought us all closer together and it's given us something to talk about when we get together and, and given us something in common and the, and the kids being the girls for sure being in the same classes together um, it's really given them something a bonding experience for them so that's been exciting but you know these these are moms and parents just like myself that we, we work hard we're willing to do what it takes and, and um, wanting a better solution for our children than just a, a public school thing so um, it's been exciting to have that camaraderie and um, having something that's kind of joined us together. And as a community, our school has really rallied around us and really, really been very incredibly supportive um, also. And so yesterday the head of school called me to congratulate us, and they posted it through our school newsletter. And, and it's everybody in the school is very aware of it, and they've had a lot of briefings on it throughout the school. So it's really brought us together closer as a community, um, as a school and as as parents, for sure. Erica, this is Gerard. I hope all is well with you. Yes, yes, thanks for having me on. So first of all, again, congratulations. So here's my question. 37 states have Blaine amendments, while Massachusetts and Michigan have what many consider to be the worst in the nation. Given what the Supreme Court has ruled, would education tax credits be legally possible even in Massachusetts and uh, Michigan? Uh, well, I think we well, we are about to release an analysis in a couple of days. It's going to go state by state how this decision affects every state with a Blaine Amendment, including those states. But we are feeling very, very hopeful 
Uh, the states that we are particularly excited about are uh, South Dakota, Texas, Idaho, Missouri. Um, those states really have been wanting to pass a school choice program or a more expansive one than they have now, and suddenly they have the opportunity. So we are very excited about what's going to be happening in the months ahead. Sounds great. Kendra, congratulations. Thank you. I'm uh, the dad of three daughters, and my youngest daughter is named Naomi, so we already have something in common. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. <laughs> great name. So you and your Naomi, really your family and IJ have been working together on your case for several years now. It's a really long time. What surprised you most about the legal process? You know, I think it has been the length of time that it takes to go from one step to the next. And, you know, the interesting thing for me was how everything would be super active and busy for a while, and then we would hear nothing. As things would settle down and we would hear nothing for a while. And then when things start to ramp up again, it's not just, it's busy, it's it's constant and it's going. But the length of time that it has taken to go through all of these steps um, and, and all of these little details that have to be in place and, and the amount of media attention, I think that those are the things that have really impacted me the most. Understandable. Erica, here's my last question for you. Those who oppose private school choice are likely to be politically active uh, in states uh, and just across the nation, particularly this year, given the uh, presidential cycle. What are some of the possible political and educational consequences of this case? Uh, I think we are going to be hearing a lot more about school choice in the news, especially, as you said, during uh, the political campaigning. I think this case will put a fire under a lot of the opponents of, of school choice to try even harder to prevent these programs from, from passing. But we feel really optimistic that the moment the momentum behind this decision is just going to help a lot of states get these programs passed, uh, despite the opposition. Yeah, this is this is Kara, Erica. I couldn't help but think yesterday, like this is what an amazing victory, especially because as we've talked about, I think with you on this show before, Blaine amendments have such a horrible, bigoted history. It's it's certainly not something that that you know we want to perpetuate that history in this country. I would hope, and and so doing away with those is enormous. But I found myself thinking yesterday uh, that there's still so much work to be done because, as you say, there's momentum, there's wind in the sails of school choice advocates. But at the same time, we already saw prior to this decision coming down um, efforts from opponents of school choice namely um, the major teachers unions trying to launch campaigns in various states to um, to put measures on ballots, et cetera, that would really block school choice initiatives. I'm really curious to know, so as, as, as the decision came out yesterday and, and uh, lay people like myself without a legal background were trying to figure it out, <laughs> um, mm. can you talk a little bit about, did the decision come down the way you all thought it would? Are there any caveats there? I mean, one of the things that stood out, I think, is that this was a decision on its face, right? Addressing specifically what Montana did. But that seems to have implications for all of the other Blaine amendments that are so close to Montana's. Is that what IJ expected? Is that what your team expected? Or is there anything in there that we need to think about? Uh, so overall, the opinion is what we expected and, and hoped for. What the court said was that it's unconstitutional to 
apply Montana's no aid provision or Blaine Amendment uh, to discriminate against religion and religious families and religious schools. And from the court's opinion, it's clear that you cannot apply any Blaine Amendment in any state to discriminate against religious families and religious schools. So it is, the opinion is what we hoped for and is what we expected. Uh, We had never challenged the Blaine Amendment on its face to try to get the Blaine Amendment completely removed from the Montana Constitution just because it was unnecessary to do so. Um, As long as the court made clear that you can't apply it to school choice programs, we, we would go home very happy. The one caveat from the decision that some people are already talking about is the majority opinion said that the reason that the discrimination was unconstitutional here was because it discriminated against parents uh, and schools' religious status. And uh, Justice Roberts refused to address whether you could somehow discriminate against parents' uh, religious use of funding. So I think it's possible. I think this would be a hard argument for opponents to make, but I think it's possible that they will come back and try to say that or structure a school choice program in a way that tries to restrict how scholarship funds are used for religious uses or religious classes. Uh, I think that would be very difficult for them to do just because the fact that a religious school teaches religious classes is just so uh, tied up with what the religious school is. And I think it's clear you'd still have discrimination there, but I would not be surprised if there were future legal battles about that. And is there anything, Erica, that um, that you saw in the dissenting opinions note for the audience, or were those two what you expected? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't say there was anything surprising in the dissenting opinions. I would say I will say that in Justice Alito's concurrence, he really dove down deeply into the history behind Blaine amendments and how these amendments really were uh, enacted to discriminate against. Catholics in the late 1800s. And he strongly implied that these amendments are unconstitutional on their face. So it was it was gratifying to have Justice Alito rely on a lot of the history uh, that we talked about in our, our brief and, and the pioneers to talked about in their amicus brief. Yeah, I know that we have Pioneer. We're very satisfied to see that cited. (laughs) And also, I have to give a shout out to my mentor, uh, my dissertation advisor, Charlie Glenn, whose work, The Myth of the Common School, was also cited. So it's so many. And you all assembled so many just wonderful, informative, well-written briefs on this case. And I will encourage everybody in the listening audience to read those as well as the decision. We know that you all are um, very busy people today, and today especially. So it's been such a privilege to have you with us. But Kendra, before we let you go, um, I'd love to know, did you and your girls choose to celebrate in any specific way? We actually haven't had a chance to yet at this point. Um, it was a long and busy day, and of course, I we had the press conference right after the decision came out, and then I was off to work and had a couple of other interviews throughout the day um, while I was doing stuff throughout the day. So we, by the time I got home and we had dinner, it was um, it was a late evening, and we haven't had a chance to. But perhaps this weekend, being that it's the Fourth of July and it's um, you know it's a celebration week for us, we might just do something special. I hope so. Make a cake. <laughs> That's right. 
Well, Erica and Kendra, thank you so much for spending time with us again. Congratulations. Uh, you have uh, helped plow us toward uh, more equity and more opportunity in the United States. And it wasn't easy and people do not understand the impact it has on families and also the role that IJ played. So this is a victory on a number of fronts. Thank you so much for your time. And again, this is why we have the learning curve to bring on smart people with smart ideas to create a smart country. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to you both. And Gerard, before we close out today, I think we really got to take a minute to thank some of the people, so many people that have been working on this uh, before this case even could have been conceived, but for but for decades, really. And so, but let's start with the folks that made this case come to fruition. The IJ team, um, Dick Comer, Tim Keller, Erica Smith, everybody at IJ. I mean, we can't speak enough about um, about what these folks have done to to advance school choice in this country, to advance opportunity for families. I'd also like to give a shout out um, to my mentor, Charlie Glenn, who has been his myth of the, his book, Myth of the Common School, hugely influential in the school choice movement. Pioneer Institute for, um, well, just letting us do this and for their fabulous work on this over the years. And to the other organizations so near and dear to my heart where I spend my days, um, the Foundation for Excellence in Education. Our board chair, Governor Jeb Bush, is a longtime champion of school choice, CEO Patricia Levesque. And I have to give a big shout out to my um, my great colleague and friend, Tim Abram, who has been writing about this with me uh, since he joined our team this year. So many others to thank, AFC among them, EdChoice. Gerard, who am I missing here? Well, you've definitely hit on the right people, in particular as it relates to IJ. We also want to throw a shout out now to Justice Clint Bolick uh, on the Arizona Supreme Court. Clint uh, started some of this work uh, in the early 90s uh, when I first got started, and so want to put him in as well. Uh, want to also thank uh, Dr. Howard Fuller, but also uh, the Black Alliance for Educational Options family, the Bayo family, who played a role for you know many years in uh, in moving this to the forefront. Uh, want to also thank some of our uh, some funders who've played a role, everyone at one point, uh, from the Walton Family Foundation to Kern Family Foundation to the Beckett Fund to others who've invested money in the idea that, hey, parents really need an opportunity. And so I want to thank them as well. And want to thank the, uh, the millions of parents who've benefited uh, from tax credit programs across, across the country. Your name may never find its way on a Supreme Court uh, docket. Your name may never end up in the newspaper, but the fact that you decided to do something uh, that was radical and it's called making a decision that worked for you and your family and stepping out of the normalcy and stepping into something that was new, sometimes untried, sometimes challenging, and sometimes financially challenging. I want to thank all of you because you made today uh, possible as well. And, uh, you know, of course, we cannot end without thinking the Pioneer Institute who was talking about Blaine, uh, Blaine Amendments and Blaine and have had a number of meetings in uh, Boston um, along the years when it wasn't a sexy topic. And so without Pioneer Institute, in many ways, we wouldn't have this conversation. So I want to thank our friends. And if we miss some of you, it's not because uh, we did it uh, on purpose. And also want to give a shout out to the American Enterprise Institute and Hoover Institute, uh, who've been doing some of this work as well. 
Heritage, our friend Lindsay, uh, Cato, want to thank them as well because the SPN uh, family has been involved in this topic as well. And also want to say thank you to my friend uh, Robert Enloe. He and I have partnered on a number of things over the years, and this is a big victory for all of us. Cute. Onward, Gerard. Talk soon. Talk soon.